Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Um, if you were here last week, you know that we've gone uh, slower than we intended. And last week I looked up by God's providence and saw that I'd only gone through half my notes before we got finished. And so we're going to continue um, going through verses 15 through 20, uh, a difficult passage today. Um, but we're going to be focusing on verses 18, 19, and 20 with the promises attached and given to God's people that have to go through these things. Uh, notice with me, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. This is God's holy inspired Word. You stand with me if you could. The words of our Savior Jesus Christ, given perfect, perfect law. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Please pray with me. Lord, I come before you with with much trembling today uh, as we try to open up these promises that you've given in Jesus Christ. And God, as I have... Few pieces of bread, God. Um, I pray that as the disciples gave you what they had, you broke it and made it sufficient for the audience. I pray that you would help me by your word and your spirit to bring to mind things that aren't coming to mind, that you give me proper tone and attitude and reverence as I preach, and that all of us would exalt in Jesus Christ through what's being taught here today. Please help us in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Going through these last three verses of this paragraph, I just want us to be reminded next week, as I'm not going to be here and Brother Joey is preaching, that Jesus desires to end this section of His discourse on forgiveness and the attitude that we ought to have to one another. If any of us are convicted of sin, or if anybody else is convicted of sin, and somebody repents of that, We are to have an open, full, and forgiving heart to those people. No matter how many times that happens, we are to welcome them. And here in our passage today, we come to the promises that Jesus Christ gives to those who would seek little ones, seek those who are going astray from God's people. Now, as I was thinking about this, what came to my mind most preeminently is that God loves to give confidence to His people. He loves to give confidence to His people. He knows that we naturally, are, and because of the fall, are weak and sinful people prone to rationally think about this world and put our trust in other things. And so God often condescends. He comes down lower than He needs to come down in His justice to give us grace. He promises, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that no temptation will overtake us that we are not able to escape by His 
grace. He promises us many such things that God will actually bear the burden for us. He will bring us so far in providence and alleviate burdens sometimes. But I think some of the more precious promises in God's Word is when we have to go through those burdens and those hardships and God promises by His grace not that He will lessen the burden, but that He approves of faithfulness in His people. That He approves of His people going through hard times even though it won't be lessened and it will be tragic and terrible. God loves to build the confidence of His people in Him and Jesus Christ does that in our text here today. I want us to notice that after the difficulty that we are called to engage in, the difficult duty of seeking little ones, Jesus gives assurance to the church that He uses the authority given to her as prescribed. He assures us that the authority that we have is for our... for we should be confident in exercising that authority. Now, the purpose that we have here today is twofold, and it'll serve as the, the outline of our text. First, we must have confidence in God's approval when we act according to God's Word. And second, that we would have confidence in Christ's presence. These are the two overarching promises given in the Word of God. And so, first and foremost, I want us to, to see and to know, brothers and sisters that we must have confidence in God's promised approval. That is, when God gives a promise to His people, it is not something that we have the responsibility to either ignore or to take, but that we have the moral onus put upon us. Whenever God has a promise, we must believe it. We must believe that God says what is true and He is not lying. And here we have... First, confidence that God promises His approval when we appropriately practice church discipline. And the first thing we should notice is that confidence is something that is absolutely essential for using the keys of the kingdom. That is, in welcoming people into the church through the forgiveness of sins and giving assurance of their salvation because of their profession in Christ. And we also must have confidence when we must shut people out because of their sin and unrepentant sin. And so, first I want us to just notice the context as we have multiple times. And we see here Christ, the tone of His speech is grave. It's weighty. We see this from front to back. First, in verses 1-4, through we saw the disciples with their presenting problem to the great physician... They wanted to be the great ones. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus puts down their spiritual pride and with gravity in His voice tells them that if they don't repent of this spiritual pride, it makes them contrary to the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, they must become like little children, continually repenting of spiritual pride to become that. And it is a grave thing that Christ speaks of. Second, In verses 5-9, through Christ speaks with gravity in His voice about being careful not to lead others into sin. Not being a stumbling block of others. Adopting doctrines and patterns of life that would cause others to sin is a grave thing in God's sight. And He uses the gravest language. It would be better for that person who tempts somebody to sin to have a millstone hung about their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
verses 10 through 14, again, we see gravity in the words of Jesus Christ because we must seek sheep that go astray in love. We must care enough about them as Christ cared about them, leaving heaven to seek the lost. As the angels of God care about God's people, seeking after them and God's will that He would not have any of these little ones to perish. And then last week, what we tried to focus on is the gravity of Christ that we must practice discipline with care. Brothers and sisters, as I'd remind you today, this is the closest thing I believe in the New Testament that we have to a legal code given by Jesus Christ. He uses legal language of gathering witnesses and evidence, bringing charges against people. And there's a procedure that Jesus Christ would have us to follow because these things are important to us. And this ought to impress upon us the gravity of what we're called and commanded to do by God's grace in seeking out lost Sinners, this is a careful legal process. And because any process that is careful, it shows the the weight of what we're doing. We must be careful because it it involves, involves removal from the covenant people of God. And it shows the antitype of death that was given in the old covenant. Those things are weighty, brothers and sisters. In those, we we exercise the keys of the kingdom that we've already talked about. And this is, again, a symbol of authority given to us. And such a gracious symbol of authority given to us. I am so stupid in my mind that I often can't grasp what God calls me to do. But the key is a simple symbol, isn't it? I I ask my daughter what a key does. And, well, it locks. And it unlocks. It's a symbol of authority in my own house. I have a key to my house and I have the authority to unlock the door and go in. I have the authority to lock and keep others out. And this is what's been given to the church. We unlock the door when we hear a sinner coming to Christ. We present the Gospel that we're covenant breakers by nature. We've broken all of God's laws and we deserve wrath and condemnation. But through belief in Jesus Christ, trust in all that He said and all that He does, you can have complete forgiveness of sins, pardon and acceptance with God. We unlock the door. As is said in John 20.23 to the apostles on Christ's resurrection, He told them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins of any... It is withheld. And this isn't just some sort of popish declaration that we put upon things. This is an exercise giving assurance to God's people when they come to Christ. The church has the authority to unlock that door and say, welcome and come into God's covenant community. But with the locking of the door, likewise, it's a removal of assurance. It's a removal of assurance. The covenant community, and that's why we take church membership so seriously here, We give assurance to God's people when they become members of His church. We say, your profession of faith is clear. Your style of life does not contradict your profession of faith. Come and welcome. And we we give you assurance by partaking with you in the Christian life. But we remove assurance from those who are showing themselves not to be Christians. There's no evidence that we see in you, brother or sister, is what we're saying. That God's grace is abiding in you at this time. You've forsaken God. And so, because of that terrifying pronouncement, okay, that's what I want us to have in mind. The terrifying pronouncement of what we're saying 
that if we lock the door, you're outside of God's covenant community, outside of the promises and abiding in, in death. It's, it should be terrifying to do that. Absolutely terrifying. This is not removal of a name from a social club that we're talking about here. This is something we believe has real spiritual consequences and that Christ has commanded us to do no matter how difficult it is. So terrifying. I I would not be shy to tell you, brothers and sisters, I would never, ever in my life want to engage in it of my own will. Now... Christ giving this legal procedure in verses 15 through 17 gives us some measure of confidence, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? That God Himself has come down in the person of Jesus Christ and He's told us exactly how we are to operate in this situation. If we abide by that rule and we can examine ourselves and say with a good conscience, I've done everything that Christ has called me to do here, not perfectly, but to the best of my ability, do we have confidence in that? A greater confidence is built because of that legal procedure that Jesus Christ has given to us. And on the opposite side, don't we have discomfort if we don't follow it? Shouldn't we have discomfort if we refuse the words of Christ and refuse to do what He said in seeking a brother or sister? But for me and for you, I don't think, brothers and sisters, that's not enough. It doesn't give me the confidence that I need to engage in what Christ calls us to do in these difficult situations. And because God is so good to us, He is pleased to give us spiritual promises. I want us to notice that in verse 18, we have confidence because God promises His approval. God promises His approval to us. I'll I'll read it one more time. Truly, I say to you, Christ says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I just want us to, to recognize here today God's grace in giving sinners like us promises like this. Recognize that He doesn't owe it to us in in His justice. That God, by His sovereign will and decree, because of the being who He is, being the creator of all and the sustainer and governor of all of creation, He can say to you, do this without adding any promise to it. And you, because you're a creature, owe Him absolute, perfect, and perpetual obedience because of His command and His command alone. But God is so gracious to sinners like us. He has no requirement to embolden us, but He does. And grace is revealed to us by His adding the promise to the command here. And we know, by way of a tangential argument here that the only reason that God can add any promise to us is because we are in Jesus Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. That because we're saved and we are not enemies of God any longer only through faith in His Son, He can give us promises and that means that we can accept those promises. Not because of who we are, in ourselves, but who we are in Jesus Christ. And I want us to just think about God adding this promise that He is unveiling here. Christ unveils before His church in the midst of the most difficult situation a spiritual reality that is unseen to us. A spiritual reality that is unseen to us. Now, 
God does this many times in the Old Testament, doesn't He? Jacob's ladder that Brother Joey read to us in Genesis 28. When Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau who wants to kill him, Jacob receiving the promise from his father, and he's in the middle of a desert region, and he doesn't have anything but a rock to put under his head, even though he received the promises of God that he'd have the the fat of the earth and dew of heaven. And that night, God was pleased to condescend to him and give him a promise by unveiling a spiritual reality, didn't he? He said, this place where you lay your head, it's it's a place of God's special presence. It's my chosen place that your, your people will inhabit and inherit. We see this also with Elisha's servant, don't we? We went through this in 2 Kings in our Wednesday night service a couple weeks ago. That as Elisha's servant is terrified because of the armies that are surrounding going to take Elisha, Elisha prays to the Lord. And God condescends by unveiling a spiritual reality to Elisha's servant. If you recall the text, he looks and he sees chariots of fire all around Elisha protecting him. God unveils spiritual realities at times so that we might have confidence. And that's what we have in our text here today. We have Jesus telling us that God approves of the church's biblically oriented decisions. And it reveals the judgment of the court of heaven. Now, I'll say that again. What we have here with this binding and loosing language is that Jesus tells us that God approves of the church's decision because it reflects the court of heaven's decision. Now, when we think of binding and loosing, we we get an image in our mind of tying something up or untying it. And it's connected with this image of the key to lock and to unlock. And I remember when I was first saved into a very hyper-charismatic group of believers, we were surrounded with all sorts of teaching about binding and loosing, right? And really what it was, was you can name and claim anything that you wanted. That if anybody bound something, you would literally say with your lips, I bind that car, and you'd believe that in heaven it would be bound, and then therefore it would be mine someday. But, here, what we see is it's a correlation with heaven's court. The context that we have here is talking about church court and what churches decide to do and that God approves of those things. But I I want us to see, and I would propose to you, that our English translations don't bring out the, the strength of the Greek text in this section. Notice with me, in verse 18, you you have in your English translations, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And what we have in our mind is what we do presently, whatever you bind shall be. In the future, it shall be bound in heaven. And we can get an unnatural and I think an unbiblical idea in our mind that the church is so great and their decisions are so great that God kind of rubber stamps whatever the church decides. But that's not at all what's being talked about here. It's not saying that God reacts to what the church does and approves of it. In fact, it's saying quite the opposite of that. In the Greek, we have the perfect tense being used here, and you could read it. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And you're like, what, what does that mean? Right? 
The perfect tense describes a, a past activity that has ramifications and effect in the, few, in, the, in the present and in the future. Such as when we read that Christ is risen. He is not a Christ that has been raised. He is a risen Savior. It's an event that took place in the past but has effects in our future reality. So here we have an already existing decision in heaven that took place in God's eternal courts, but is worked out in the church's life that it experiences in time. This is not a rubber stamping of church authority. Rather, it's heaven's judgment worked out in providence. Heaven's judgment worked out in providence. And I hope you see what I mean by that. That God, in His eternal mind, He decrees whatsoever comes to pass on this earth. But he uses the means of his church to accomplish his purposes and to make those purposes known and visible to the church and the unbelieving world. Now, to make this clear, God's eternal purposes, what's been loosed in heaven, is providentially made visible in the church in the use of the keys and the joy of receiving sinners. And the joy of receiving sinners. Uh, That is that God has elected a people from all eternity to be His people. But in a moment of time, God regenerates that person. They repent of their sins and they're received into the church, right? So what we bind, we bind that person. We, We believe that they're saved in Jesus Christ. It's something that has been bound in heaven. And the most wonderful example I could think of this week, there might be others is in Acts chapter 2. This action of the church to receive sinners to itself has its most glorious manifestation on what took place at Pentecost. The Apostle Peter, (laughs) the Apostle Peter preaching, not the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter preaching says in verse 40, notice, And with many other words, he he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And notice verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That is, to the covenant community of God's people, were added 3,000 souls. They repented of their sins, and they're added. What a glorious representation of the use of the keys of the kingdom. And again, this isn't God saying, well, since you baptized them, I guess I'll take them in. It's because they're mine, my people, I've chosen. I saved them. Your decision, because it's been biblically done, reflects God's decision in heaven. But it also gives confidence in the hardship and the terror of discipline. And I'd have you turn to 1 John 2.19. We know this text very well. But what I'm trying to impress upon us here is this binding and loosing language. It is not to say, again, that the church is such a great authority that God respects its decision, but rather that God works through the providence of church decisions to reveal what's already happened. In verse, chapter 2 and verse 19, we read, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be might become plain that they are not 
of us. And so we might argue, well, that's not talking about church discipline. And that could be. But the point being in this passage that providentially there are divisions among God's people. People leave, not just leave the building. That's what we're talking about. Leave the faith, okay, to make manifest something, right? That it might become plain, John says, that they are, they all are not of us. And so we, we're to come to this text when we see that we're to have confidence because God approves and that He works His approval out in the providence of the mysterious working of God's charismatic gifts in His people. We praise God for this promise. That He would give us such confidence, sinners like us. And without this promise, I dare say nobody should have the confidence to go forward with it. But we, we not only have confidence because God approves, in this section we also have confidence that God will act. That God will act. That something is accomplished in this. So notice with me in verse 19 of Matthew 18 that Christ says, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Now, notice with me that Christ is somewhat repeating the same promise that's already been given. Okay? We've been confident about God's approval of, of appropriately, biblically determined decisions. And here we have Jesus saying again. Right? Attaching these two things together. And the, the emphasis that Christ is drawing here is not so much on the decision of the church, but the prayer of the church. Now, if we think about this text in isolation from the context, you know, where that uh, if two of you agree on anything they ask, it will be done for my Father in heaven. I, I think it's somewhat appropriate to take it generally, okay? That is, I don't want to attach this so precisely to the context that we can't take this as a general promise given to God's people. Um, it, it's generally true of corporate prayer. Um, you know, we know that God answers individual prayer. That in James chapter 5, we're told that Elijah was a man of like nature that, as we are, right? But he, he prayed that the earth would not rain or that the heavens would not rain on earth and it was done for him in what he asked. But it seems when you read throughout Scripture a very clear indication, not just in Scripture, but in our personal experience, that God has a special delight when God's people get together to pray about something in particular, doesn't it? That they would lift up their voices, and in the Greek, a symphony, right? And a symphony of prayer to God asking for a particular thing. We, we see this in a number of Scripture, don't we? The first time that the apostles are gathered before the court of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, we see them leaving after being threatened not to preach in this name anymore. And what do they do first? They go to the church to a corporate prayer meeting. And they pray to God that He would stretch out His hand and save and heal. And the foundations of that place were shaken through that corporate prayer. We see Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12. And he's surrounded by 16 soldiers. But then the author notes to us that the church was gathered together in prayer. And Peter was freed that very Night. We see Paul as the last example in Ephesians chapter 6 asking the Ephesian church to please pray for me that utterance would be given to me so I'd preach the gospel boldly as I ought to preach it. There seems to be in Scripture that God delights in God's 
people praying corporately. And as Brother Joey taught us today, we shouldn't think of this as, you know, God's really strong and He doesn't want to do this, so if we get enough people to twist His arm, maybe we'll get Him to acquiesce and do what we decide to do. Rather, it's God delighting in His people coming together to show His power and grace by our faith in Him, our corporate faith in Him, that He acts in this way. But here in our text, we must see that in the context it does say something. In the church's use of the keys, we're we're asking God to do something. And some of the most strong language in Scripture is used here because in discipline, we are asking God to, again, providentially work to do something spiritual in excommunication. As we saw last week, the goal of all discipline is what? Restoration to fellowship. We want people to come back. We want them to see their sin, to have their eyes open, and that they would be with us once again. And we are asking God to to providentially work in excommunication. We're, We're asking God to remove the blinders of false assurance through providence, that they might know their error. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 5, in the clearest language. Paul writes, difficult language, okay? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, notice, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The, the prayer is that, that God would would so work in somebody's life to bring them to the end of themselves so that they would repent and that true spiritual good would be done to them. And again, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19, the same kind of language. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle of love, says this, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, notice, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We're asking God to remove false assurance from the eyes of those who would be dealt with. We must recognize the spiritual nature of what's happening here, brothers and sisters. In both of these cases, the excommunicated soul is said to be delivered over to Satan for redemptive purposes. We're asking God again to remove spiritual blinders and spiritual security, false security, in order to, that they'd be used to wake sinners to their condition that they might run to Christ. And again, it, we, we're doing this because it's what Christ prescribes and we believe that He will use the means that He prescribes and them alone. And so, first, we, we are given confidence in God's promise that He approves of a, a biblically-oriented church that follows His rules and His decrees here for the, for the reconciliation and redemption of those who have gone astray. But secondly, in verse 20, we have confidence through Christ's presence. And I would say it even more boldly, just as we must have confidence in God's approval, we must, if we believe the Word of God, have confidence that Christ is present among us as a church. And What I want us to see, and I'll read it again, because these are so popular. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. 
And again, brothers, is it true that Jesus is among any two people that believe in Jesus Christ meeting for coffee? Of course it is. God works in a special way when brothers and sisters meet together, but Christ is peculiarly... I got new thing this week and so it's hard for me to talk he's peculiarly present when we meet together as a church when we are the ecclesia this is a, a greek word that derives from civil government the gathering of god's people the ecclesia god is particularly present god is omnipresent we know that he is generally everywhere as the psalmist says in psalm 139 if i go to heaven you're there and if i make my bed in the depths of hell god you are There. He is everywhere. And although this is true in all occasions, it is specifically talking about the special meeting of God's elected, chosen, redeemed, confessing people. And as we think about that, that God has a special presence in special places. That may seem strange to us as as Christians who have probably been raised on a diet of American individualism where, where as long as I have my Bible and I'm alone by myself somewhere, that's where God is peculiar, peculiarly present. But that's not what the Bible teaches us, brothers and sisters. God has had a, a special presence with God's gathered corporate people. We see that in the Old Testament, don't we? In the tabernacle and in the temple. That God was pleased when He formed the the worship of that old covenant people to put His presence in particular in the central place of worship, corporate worship of His people. That is when the tabernacle was first instituted in worship in Leviticus chapter 9. What do we see happening? They followed the closely guarded rules of God to to sprinkle everything and to sanctify it. And God shows His approval by fire coming from heaven. Ordaining This as a place of God's people. We see it in the temple as well with the same language used of Solomon. And because of that in the Old Testament, we see that it was meant to produce a reverence that flowed from that reality, wasn't it? That God is really present here. And therefore, in part, I must be careful how I worship Him. I cannot be like Nadab and Abihu who just wander into God's presence and offer Him anything that I want because they're struck dead. On the other hand, it's a special place of God's presence and His mercy as well. That God blesses the houses even that the Ark of the Covenant is in while it's in exile. God is with His people, but I'll tell you here, brothers and sisters, that the New Testament presence of God's gathered people is stronger than the Old Testament. Now, He might have attached to that Old Testament presence many signs, the cloud and the fire, but I'll tell you here today, as God's gathered people who have the Word of God written on their hearts and who love Him, His presence is truly among us here today. Not in a poetic kind of way. Nor in a general kind of way. In a special and peculiar way. He is the God that walks among the lampstands. He's with a gathered, believing church of God's people. And I just want to bring three witnesses from the New Testament to show you His presence among us. Please uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been there many, many, many times lately. And in particular, I want us to see the language that's similar with Matthew chapter 18 when we're gathered together in His name. 
Notice 1 Corinthians 5. Paul, I, I can find no other logical conclusion that Paul had Matthew chapter 18 in front of him when he wrote this chapter because the language is so similar. Notice with me in verse 4. When you are assembled, notice, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our, of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. That is, when we're assembled in the name of God, in the name of Christ, that means something ecclesiological. That we're gathering together to worship God and to do what the church is commanded to do. To read from the word, to learn from the word, and to, to purify the church as necessary and to receive other members. We see the same language of God's special presence um, among the people of God in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, And here, I'm just pointing out that when we gather for the Lord's table, it's not just any gathering. It's a gathering in a very particular way. In verse 17, we read, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, okay, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together, notice, as a church. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And then lastly, what we've alluded to several times, and probably the strongest text is Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. When we gather together, we gather together in the name of Jesus, we gather together as a church. It's a special kind of meeting. But notice the spiritual presence that is promised so strongly in this text. Notice verse 12 of Revelation 1. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. We know this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice with me, we have the interpretation given to us in verses in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Christ is in the midst of God's people. In His divine nature, every church that's gathered together on this Lord's Day in this country and throughout the world has the presence of Jesus Christ specially and peculiarly among them. And this promise that we have is that Christ is really present in a peculiar way when we meet together. To gather in the name of Jesus has an ecclesiological significance that is beyond just having coffee together. Although that's a wonderful thing that we want to cultivate, there's something greater when we come to worship Him. He is the one who walks among the lampstands who is present with His gathered people. So, as we see this here in our text, it's to give us confidence that when we receive members into the church, when we have to, lock, lock those out. That the Spirit of Christ is present with us, and so we must do it in fear and honor. But He also works powerfully among us in worship. It's not just that He's present, but He, he certainly works among us. And what an assurance to know as we meditate on this reality that Christ is present with us, that He is with us when we worship our God. When we worship our God, that God is 
truly with us here in this room today. In fact, I would say that He's with us in the preaching, the singing, the sacrament. He's very present with us. He's here to convict and save sinners. Now, I know that we typically think of evangelism as happening outside the doors of the church, and that's true, but... The New Testament in a couple of different places talks about the gathered body of God's people and the preaching of the Word that is there. And especially because of the presence of Christ, it's powerful to convert sinners. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25. I love this text. Paul, in talking about church order, that we must do things, everything in an edifying and orderly way, He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that what? God is really among you. God is really among you. But it's not just in saving sinners that Christ actively works in his presence through worship. He changes us, doesn't He, brothers and sisters? As we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, we are changed not by looking to the law, but by looking to Christ in grace. It's by beholding the glory of the Lord. We're changed from the same image, from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. It is when we come together and gaze upon Jesus Christ and all of His beauty, all of His grace, that we are truly changed. And that's partly because He's present with us. But here, in our text, again, we are to know that He is also with us when we must practice the dreadful duty of excommunication. Jesus wants us to know that He is among us. And because He is accomplishing His purposes on earth, He uses the preaching ministry of the Word to save and to grow sinners And he uses church discipline to rebuke, distinguish, and purify his people. Brothers, we're not not hyper-Calvinists. We don't believe that God works and God elects and God decrees, but he doesn't care about the means. God uses the means of prayer, the means of preaching, the means of evangelism to do his work. He uses the means of church discipline to purify his people, to strengthen us, to grow us. God is good in that. And so, in conclusion here, we can have confidence that He works through us. And the point here is that Christ attaches these spiritual promises so that we would not walk according to our own rational mind and what our eyes see. We walk not by what our eyes see, but what our ears hear, brothers and sisters. We don't follow Matthew chapter 18 because we think it'll work. We follow it because God says that He will work in His own will and timing if He deems it necessary. He wants us to have confidence that God hears us. He wants us to have confidence and assurance that heaven approves. And He wants us to have confidence that as we gather together as a church, He truly is present with His people. And that confidence is meant to carry us through the most difficult things that we ever have to do. And to give us fear that we do them rightly and not in our own human judgment. So in conclusion, we end this section on church discipline and seeking little ones, seeking those who have gone astray, putting a 
a punctuation mark on the fact that God gives us great and spiritual promises in order to embolden us to do something that nobody ever wants to do. He gives us grace to do what we can't do and, and helps along the way. And uh, as we turn our eyes to the Lord's table, uh, this is a symbol as well of God's promises to us, isn't it? That if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we have repented and put our trust in Him, these symbols of bread and wine are a promise to us that if we believe in Christ, His body was broken for you. If we believe in Christ, His blood was shed for you. Brother, would you come forward?